When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Edom, October 26, 1803. My dear friend, I am glad to hear of your safe, though weary arrival at the haven of other men's ambitions, your purgatory, where indeed you will see good spirits with other spirits concerned by democracy from the vasty deep. To serve the people successfully will be out of your power. The attempt to do it will be unpopular. To flatter, inflame, and betray them will be the applauded work of demagogues who will dig graves for themselves and erect thrones for their victors, as in France. Our country is too big for union, too sordid for patriotism, too democratic for liberty. What is to become of it, he who made it best knows. Its vice will govern it by practicing upon its folly. Your truly affectionate friend, etc., Fisher Ames. Numerous times in this podcast, We have discussed how fragile the Union was in the early Republic, despite the myths and legends that have grown up over the years about how George Washington unified the nation. Nearly seven years after Washington left office as chief executive, the nation faced a new threat as some of the political leaders, whose names were well known in the halls of power, began contemplating whether to pursue a plan of disunion. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host. Jerry Landry. Special thanks to patron of the show, Matthew, for providing the intro quote for this episode. Patrons of the show help me to continue to provide well-researched episodes for free to all of you, so I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our patrons, Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Kara, Howard, and Scott. If you're able to help support the podcast financially, you can do so for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash presidencies. I have numerous patron tiers available that come with their own rewards, but all patrons get a shout-out as well as access to my weekly posts that give a behind-the-scenes look at the work being done at Presidencies HQ. Patrons at the $10 and above level get to participate in a monthly Q&A session with me, and I've greatly enjoyed the opportunity to get to interact live with fellow presidential history enthusiasts. If you can't contribute financially, there are other ways to help support the show including leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other podcast platform that has that capability. Sharing information about episodes on social media or by telling that history enthusiast in your life about this podcast also greatly helps, as word of mouth is the best form of promotion. However you support the show, I cannot thank all of you enough. Before we return to the conspiracy at home, I think at high time that we hit the high seas and check in with Commodore Edward Prable, who, when we last left him in episode 3.17, was heading on the USS Constitution to take command of the Mediterranean Squadron. The Constitution arrived off the southwesternmost point of Portugal on September 5, 1803, and received word from a brig that they met heading in the opposite direction that there was a report of Tripolitan vessels off the Spanish coast being pursued by Captain William Bainbridge and the USS Philadelphia. Rather than divert course to assist, and trusting that Bainbridge had the situation in hand, 
Prabel opted to proceed on to the North African coast. But a few days later, an unidentified ship was spotted near sunset on the same course that the Constitution was set. At around 8.30 p.m., it was discovered that the ship was quite close and was, in fact, a warship. The Commodore hailed the ship, calling, What ship is that? He was met by the same inquiry in return, and thus identified that, quote, This is the United States Frigate Constitution. What ship is that? The reply, What ship is that? Probel repeated his identification, but only got the same question for the third time in response. According to Prabel biographer Christopher McKee, quote, Prabel's patience, never proverbial, was by now exhausted, and he called out, I'm now going to hail you for the last time. If a proper answer is not returned, I will fire a shot into you. The other ship hailed that, if fired upon, they would, quote, return a broadside. But this did not stop Prabel from asking, what ship is that? They identified themselves as the HMS Donegal with 84 guns and a Commodore, and ordered that the Constitution, quote, send your boat on board. Again from McKee, quote, that was too much for Prable, who scrambled up onto the nettings and shouted, this is the United States ship Constitution, 44 guns, Edward Prable, an American Commodore, who will be damned before he sends his boat on board of any vessel. And he called to the men gathered around the quarterdeck guns, Blow your matches, boys! Now, let's remember for a moment that the United States Navy, which even at its strongest had paled in comparison to the British Navy, had, at this point, been cut in strength even more by the Jefferson administration. For an American Commodore to directly challenge the British like this in an incident that could, if shots were fired, be seen as a casus belli for war, was going out on a big limb. Whether the result of a short temper or a calculated move, Prable's challenge called the British bluff. For a few minutes, there was nothing. Then, the sound of a boat approaching was heard. A British lieutenant came on board the Constitution and explained that his ship was, in fact, the frigate Maidstone. He apologized for the deception, but the Maidstone's crew had spotted the Constitution that afternoon as well, and, as they thought it might be a hostile ship, decided to fall back to get a closer look. However, when Prable first hailed, the commander of the ship had not been able to get all of his crew to quarters, hence the deception to bide for time and determine if, in fact, Prable and the Constitution were what he said they were. I include this incident in our narrative, dear listener, to demonstrate how small incidents on the high seas could easily potentially lead to larger conflicts, something you'll want to keep in mind for future episodes. Also, as McKee explained, quote, This small incident made a strong impression on Prable's officers. The Commodore's terrible temper had made him disliked by many of them, but by standing up to the British, he made himself a hero of wardroom and steerage. Before he could focus in on the situation with Tripoli, however, Commodore Prable and the new U.S. Consul Tripoli, Tobias Lear, had to deal with the situation with Morocco. Though through diplomatic efforts, the U.S. had been able to draw Morocco back from its brief active intervention in the Tripolitan conflict on the side of Tripoli, Moroccan vessels had still been attacking American shipping in the Mediterranean, and Prable acknowledged in a report to Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith on October 1st that, despite this overt hostility, an open conflict with Morocco was to be avoided at all costs. Quote, the Emperor of Morocco has such an extensive seacoast on the Atlantic, 
and is so advantageously situated on the streets for annoying our commerce that it is very much for our interest to be on good terms with him. Thus, Prable and Lear aboard the Constitution traveled to Tangier and worked with the U.S. Consul to Morocco, James Richard Simpson, to get the Sultan of Morocco, Suleiman, to agree to a formal ratification of the previous treaty between the U.S. and Morocco in order to resolve the crisis and reaffirm Morocco's commitment to ensuring the safety of American merchant ships in the Mediterranean. As noted by Lear biographer Ray Bryden, quote, While bravado may not be an endearing trait, there's little doubt that Prable's fleet, supplemented by a couple of Captain John Rogers' vessels, intimidated the emperor. Indeed, under Prable's command, American warships had been making their way up and down the Moroccan coast, and the Constitution itself, quote, had been in Tangier Bay no less than three times in one week. The Americans had also captured a Moroccan ship. The return of this ship, the Mashuda, was the icing on the cake for the restoration of good relations between the two nations. With that done, Prable, Lear, and the Constitution were able to return back to Gibraltar to deal with a couple of other matters before finally being able to focus their efforts on Tripoli. Prable and the Navy had not been completely remiss in dealing with Tripoli as the USS Philadelphia and the USS Vixen had been ordered to resume the blockade of Tripoli that the previous Commodore had ordered off. There was a problem with this, though. As we've previously discussed, As part of the naval reforms under the Jefferson administration, smaller vessels had been scuttled, and thus, the only vessels in the squadron at that point were larger ships. Unfortunately, Tripoli's harbor was shallow, and thus hard to maneuver for larger vessels, making it difficult, if not impossible, to implement an effective blockade. Based on feedback along these lines that the administration had gotten from trusted naval commanders who had returned from service in the Mediterranean, Jefferson, on February 28, 1803, had requested that Congress, quote, authorize the purchase or construction of four small warships, not to exceed 16 guns each, and up to 15 gunboats for service in the Mediterranean. These had been authorized, and as of October 17th, Jefferson reported in his annual message to Congress that these new vessels were en route to the Mediterranean, where they would be able to institute a solid blockade of the Tripolitan Harbor. They would not make it in time, however, to save the Philadelphia. The Philadelphia and the Vixen had arrived off the coast of Tripoli on October 7th and immediately went to it, cruising along the coast on the lookout for Tripolitan vessels. For two weeks, there had been nothing, which, according to McKee, may have made Captain Bainbridge, the commander of the Philadelphia, quote, less cautious than he should have been. On October 31st, a Tripolitan vessel was spotted and Bainbridge ordered a pursuit. However, if you remember what I said about the water being shallow, you can guess what happened next. That's right, the ship ended up running aground on the shoals, and despite the crew's efforts, they were unable to free the ship before they were captured by Tripolitan forces. Beyond just the symbolism of the loss, as the Tripolitans had managed to refloat the Philadelphia the next day and had it towed to the harbor of Tripoli, where it was anchored as a prize visible to all, The capture of the Philadelphia's crew gave them 307 crewmen to ransom, and, as Bainbridge had not destroyed his personal papers, Tripoli now knew, quote, the size and composition of Prable's squadron, as well as difficulties they had faced, including the complications with Morocco and, quote, past as well as projected movements of the American ships. According to McKee, Prable was never made aware of the latter development, but it wasn't long before the Tripolitan Bashaw's demand of $1,000 per crewman was received. 
between the ransom and the separate tribute he was demanding. This meant that Caramonli's full demand was for $450,000, twice what the initial requested tribute had been at the beginning of the war. Commodore Prable wrote to his wife Mary that, quote, The loss of the Philadelphia deranges the plans I'd formed for the reduction of Tripoli at present, but I expect the government will send me an additional force in the spring. I most sincerely pity the cruel fate of poor Bainbridge. I know not what will become of them. I suspect very few will ever see home again. As McKee comments, quote, If Edward Prable ever came close to despair, it probably was in this crisis. There was no hope for a brilliant solution of the Tripolitan War. What could Prable, with one 44-gun frigate and a handful of small vessels, do? Well, he could gather allies. First of all, Prable received word from intermediaries that the Tripolitan Bashaw's brother Hamet, despite being temporarily appeased with the governorship, as discussed in episode 3.17, was yet again agitating to overthrow Yusuf Karamandli and was prepared to offer the United States a, quote, perpetual peace if they would aid him in the plot. Meanwhile, at the end of 1803, Prable aboard the USS Constitution had ordered the detainment of a Turkish ketch, a two-masted sailboat, and, after securing its legal condemnation as misrepresenting itself as an Ottoman vessel, began to make plans with a young lieutenant named Stephen Decatur in the beginning of 1804. On February 2nd, this vessel, now dubbed the USS Intrepid, set out with the USS Siren on a secret mission. Armed with intelligence, received in a coded message from Captain Bainbridge, who, while imprisoned, had an opportunity to observe the defenses in the harbor of Tripoli, on February 16th, Lieutenant Decatur and the Intrepid slipped into the harbor with, quote, enough combustibles to burn the Philadelphia, which was still moored there. If there was no way to secure the ship and return it to American service, at the very least, it would no longer serve as a visible symbol of defeat, and it was quite possible that setting it ablaze would create an inferno that would spread to Tripolitan vessels surrounding it. The fact that the Intrepid was a Turkish ship and Decatur and the crew were, quote, dressed in Turkish fashion, allowed them to get into the harbor without suspicion, and they made their way to the captured American vessel to carry out their mission. They came under fire just as they were setting off from the Philadelphia, but in an instance of perfect timing, the powder stored aboard the ship exploded, giving the Intrepid the distraction needed to slip out of the harbor with both the vessel and the crew unscathed. It was a bold, daring move and it demonstrated in an unmistakable message that Commodore Prable was something different from his predecessors. He was ready, willing, and able to find any way that he could to bring the fight to the Tripolitans, and he and his squadron were fighting to win. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam 
And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Back in the United States, few would argue that the Federalists were winning. Anything but, in fact, as the first session of the 8th Congress was increasingly showing. With the ratification of the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, the country had doubled in size, and it was unlikely that these new citizens of the West would align with the Federalists, as the states and territories already existing west of the Appalachians were overwhelmingly Democratic-Republican. A new amendment had been sent out to the states for ratification, which would prevent the Federalists from attempting to use a tie in the Electoral College by two running mates of the same party to their advantage, as they had attempted to do in 1800. And by February 1804, it had already been ratified by seven of the 13 states needed. Federalists had managed to thwart ratification in Delaware, but it was clear that it would likely be approved by the requisite number of states and be enacted in time for the next election. Federalist Judge John Pickering had already been impeached and tried by the Senate, and it was clear that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase was next on the Democratic-Republicans' list. Younger Federalists were taking steps to better organize their faction's efforts, but some Federalist leaders began to have conversations amongst themselves as to whether trying to win at the ballot box was hopeless and more extreme measures needed to be taken. Indeed, in the Francophile President Jefferson, they began to see signs that he might emulate the increasingly autocratic leader of France, Napoleon Bonaparte. Former Representative Fisher Ames wrote to a friend about the Louisiana Purchase on October 31, 1803, and asked, quote, Having bought an empire, who is to be emperor? Not only was it Ames and other retired politicians in the group dubbed the Essex Junto expressing these concerns, but senators such as Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts, William Plumer of New Hampshire, and Uriah Tracy of Connecticut, as well as other Federalists in Congress, were starting to wonder what should be done, quote, to eliminate Virginia's political domination of the nation. Senator Pickering in particular took the lead in organizing support for a quote-unquote Northern League, and in late January 1804, wrote to former Senator George Cabot of Massachusetts that, quote, a Northern Confederacy would unite congenial characters and present a fairer prospect of public happiness, while the Southern states might be left to manage their own affairs in their own way. Pickering's plan, however, depended on the cooperation of not just all of the states in New England, but also other states like New York and New Jersey. He even had dreams of possibly attracting some of the British colonies to the north to join with them. Despite this scheming during the spring, Pickering hedged his bets, and on February 22, 1804, quote, presided over a Federalist dinner in Washington, at which General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and former U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King were named as candidates for the presidency and vice presidency. As you may recall, Pinckney was the Federalist candidate for vice president in 1800, but after that defeat, when last we saw him in episode 3.6, he was far removed from the halls of power. Pinckney's biographer Marvin Zonizer wrote of how, after 1800, though Pinckney, quote, was acknowledged to be the leading Federalist in South Carolina, Pinckney refused to assume leadership of the state's Federalist. By default, his nephew John Rutledge Jr. became the party leader. Pinckney soon found himself back in politics, however, when he was chosen as a state senator from Charleston, and he used his position to support founding a state college and establishing, quote, 
a court of inferior jurisdiction in Charleston. As his tenure went on and Federalist support in South Carolina continued to wane, so too did Pinckney's influence in the state Senate. Despite his dwindling prospects in his home state, Pinckney did retain a following in other parts of the nation, and possibly in part signal his availability for higher office, Pinckney took a five-month tour of New England in 1803. With his nomination in February 1804, it was clear that Pinckney's efforts were successful, but it remained to be seen just how effective the Federalist Party could be in running a national campaign. Meanwhile, Vice President Aaron Burr was considering the next steps in his career. Despite the injuries to his reputation in his home state due to the recent pamphlet wars, Burr started thinking in early 1804 that his political future might be more secure in New York than in Washington, D.C. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Burr had been shut out from having any influence within the Jefferson administration, and it was an open secret that many prominent Jefferson supporters blamed Burr for the fiasco of the 1800 election being thrown into the House and Federalist attempts to block Jefferson's election by supporting Burr. These supporters of the president began considering who might be a good replacement for Burr on the ticket for 1804. Various names were thrown into contention, including Attorney General Levi Lincoln, Governor of Pennsylvania Thomas McKean, Senator John Breckinridge of Kentucky, and New York Governor George Clinton. Burr's allies, meanwhile, remembering the support that the vice president had had amongst Federalists and knowing that the Clinton-Livingston faction was shutting Burr out from obtaining support from Democratic-Republicans in New York, began working to gather support from Federalist leaders for Burr to launch an independent gubernatorial run in 1804. Burr informed the Senate on January 17th that he intended to spend a few weeks in New York, but before he left, he made one last effort at mending fences within the Democratic-Republican fold. On the evening of January 26th, President Jefferson met with Vice President Burr at the President's house in Washington, and the only account that remains of what happened during the meeting is from Jefferson. According to the President, Burr laid out a general overview of his life to date and how the Clinton-Livingston faction had come to oppose him, and asserted that he felt, quote, it would be for the interest of the Republican cause for him to retire from his national role, but that he felt he needed, quote, some mark of favor from Jefferson, which would declare to the world that he had retired with Jefferson's confidence. Though the president said that he would take the request under consideration, it seems that it was pretty clear that Jefferson had no intention of doing anything to help the vice president and soon brought the meeting to an end. Thus, Burr left D.C. a few days later and arrived in New York City on February 8th to begin his independent gubernatorial campaign. Back in the Empire State, the mayor of New York City, DeWitt Clinton, though unable to convince his uncle, New York Governor Clinton, to stand for re-election to his current state post in 1804, did get his approval to write to Democratic-Republican congressional leaders to inform them that the governor was willing to be considered for the vice presidential nomination. The governor himself did his part by writing to Jefferson on January 20th, 1804, that, quote, I entreat you to be assured that when relieved from command, invalid as I am, I shall return to the ranks and with unabated zeal assist in defending the ground we have gained. On February 25th, a Democratic-Republican congressional caucus met and, after unanimously nominating Jefferson for another term as president, voted for their nominee for vice president. Governor Clinton secured 67 votes, by far a majority of the 108 individuals present, and thus became the party's nominee 
to serve as Jefferson's running mate. Though six candidates total received support at the caucus, Vice President Burr did not receive the first vote to run with Jefferson for another term. With the doors closing on his national career, Burr and his supporters would find not only DeWitt Clinton and his faction concerned about Burr's plans to run for governor, but also there was a prominent New York Federalist standing in their way. Former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, who found himself in opposition to Burr numerous times in his career, was dead set on doing all that he could to prevent Burr's election as governor. At a meeting of Federalist leaders in Albany on February 16th, Hamilton had spoken out against the proposal that the party support Burr's candidacy, but to little avail, as many of those in attendance were prepared to support Burr and there was no viable Federalist alternative. To address the latter issue, Hamilton attempted to convince former U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King to run as the Federalist candidate, asserting in a letter to King in late February that, quote, there is no other man among us under whose standard either fragment of the party could as easily rally. King, however, had already been nominated as the Federalist vice presidential candidate and thus declined Hamilton's request. The Democratic-Republicans, meanwhile, were in a poor state themselves entering the campaign. The Clinton-Livingston faction had initially chosen New York Chancellor John Lansing as their candidate, but a few days into his candidacy, Lansing withdrew from the race, and the party leaders scrambled to locate a replacement. They ultimately settled on New York Chief Justice Morgan Lewis, the son-in-law of U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston. Lewis was described by Burr biographer Milton Lomas as a, quote, mild-mannered man whose political career to date had been that of a time server, always ready to bow to the wishes of the faction in power. Hamilton was aghast at Lewis's candidacy. He had been prepared to support Lansing despite their previous political disputes and had already begun actively working on his behalf. But Lewis, he felt, was doomed to failure. Meanwhile, James Cheatham, editor of The American Citizen, had already begun a new round of attacks on Burr in print. But this time, Burr was quick to respond. That February, Burr filed a libel suit against Cheatham. But this did little to stop the editor, who used his press not just to attack Burr, but to help stoke the flames of discord between Burr and Hamilton. In his attacks on the vice president, there was no limit how far Cheatham was willing to go asserting that he and his staff had put together, quote, a list of upwards of 20 women of ill fame with whom Burr has been connected, along with another list of, quote, chaste and respectable ladies whom he has attempted to seduce. Cheatham also brought racial prejudices into the attack, accusing Burr of arranging an event at his home, Richmond Hill, quote, to woo free black voters and of using the occasion to dance with and seduce a black woman. Just as bad as Cheatham's attacks were broadsides filling the streets, accusing Burr of immoral acts, greed, corruption, and many other perfidities. We'll have to wait until next time to see how the April election turns out, though, because we must turn to more personal matters in the president's life around this time before we part ways. As mentioned in previous episodes, Jefferson's domestic situation in Washington had changed significantly in the past year. Gone was his previous secretary, Meriwether Lewis, but Jefferson had been joined by a new secretary, Lewis Harvey, as well as his sons-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph and John Wales Epps, both of whom had been elected to the House of Representatives and lived at the president's house while Congress was in session. 
The snow arrangement would not last long, though, as Harvey informed the president after less than a year in service that he wanted to leave his post as Jefferson's secretary in order to practice law. Thus, whether it came through his classmate Harvey's recommendation or if Jefferson knew of him on his own, on March 26, 1804, Jefferson wrote to William Armistead Burwell of Virginia to ask him to take Harvey's place as his private secretary. He explained to Burwell that, quote, the office itself is more in the nature of that of an aide-de-camp than a mere secretary, and briefly sketched out what the expectations would be and what Burwell can anticipate in terms of responsibilities, perks, and compensation. As Jefferson was about to leave for Monticello, he urged Burwell to write him there as soon as possible as to whether he would accept the post or if Jefferson should look for another candidate. Burwell was likely not at the forefront of his mind, however, as Jefferson made ready for his departure from D.C. Martha Jefferson Randolph had adjusted to her husband's absence and managed to attend to the family's business affairs as well as give birth to a child while he was away in Washington. But her sister, Maria Jefferson Epps, struggled more. Maria not only found being separated from her husband difficult, but she suffered from poor health while pregnant with her third child in the winter of 1803-1804. Martha wrote to her father on January 14th that, quote, Maria's spirits are bad, partly occasioned by her situation, which precludes everything like comfort or cheerfulness, and partly from the prospect of Congress not rising till April, which Mr. Randolph writes us, is the general opinion. I hope we shall do as well as if Mr. Epps was here, but certainly her mind would be more at ease could he be with her. As her pregnancy progressed, Maria's, quote, health had grown steadily worse. Her stomach had become so weak that she could hardly retain anything, yet she dared take no medicine in her present condition. Martha cared for her sister at the Randolph estate, Edge Hill, and it was here that Maria gave birth to a daughter, also named Maria, on February 15th. As noted by Martha Jefferson Randolph's biographer, Cynthia Kerner, quote, the birth was probably premature because when news of it arrived in Washington, a surprise Jack Epps quickly left to join his wife in Albemarle. The birth left Maria weak, and without the means of sustaining her child. Thus, Martha, who had just given birth four months prior, would nurse both her own child and her newborn niece, while also tending to Maria. As described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, Young Mr. Epps had a terrible journey back to Albemarle. Because of high winds, he could not cross the Potomac by ferry, and had to proceed by the bridge upstream, and thence by unfamiliar roads on which he lost his way. Impeded by ice thereafter, for long stretches, he had to walk his horse. Ultimately, though, he would arrive at Edgehill, and it was from there that Epps updated Jefferson on Maria's situation. On March 9th, he noted that, quote, I found Maria on my arrival here, free from fever and sitting up. She has no complaint at present but weakness. Her appetite is improving daily, and I have no fear but that in a short time she will be restored to health. As the month progressed, though, there was little improvement, and the decision was finally made to take her to Monticello as Jefferson had suggested, so that the mountain air and Jefferson's sherry collection could help to nurse her back to good health. From Kerner, quote, Enslaved men carried the ailing woman's frail body on a litter for roughly four miles, across a stream and up the mountain, to spare her the pain and potential danger of a bumpy carriage ride. When Congress finally adjourned on March 27th, Jefferson wrapped up his business and on April 1st departed from Washington, D.C. to join his family back in Albemarle. It is on this journey back to Monticello 
and the uncertainty of the fates of numerous individuals that we will wrap up our narrative this time. Special thanks again to Matthew for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. If you'd like to learn more about the Itinerant Band, see the source notes for this episode, or check out some of the presidential history resources that I've posted on the website, just go to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot an email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can also send me a message through social media. On Facebook, I can be found at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. I actually just hit a milestone on Twitter as I surpassed 1,500 followers. I couldn't do what I do without folks following and sharing information about the podcast. So thanks to all of you who follow me on any or all three social media platforms. Finally, thank you so much again for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.